1: This is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech podcast and the Future Tech Health. I have uh, Alyssa Crittenden. Um, She's an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology, an adjunct associate professor at the School of Medicine, and a nutritional anthropologist who works among the Hadza hunter-gatherers of Tanzania, East Africa, which is pretty cool. Uh, Her interests include the evolution of the human diet, the evolution of childhood, development of kids' pro-social behavior, and the divisions of labor between the sexes. Um, today, we're going to focus more on the uh, the food part of her learning, you know, that hunter-gatherers, uh, how did they actually eat? So, uh, Alyssa, thanks for coming. How are you doing?
2: Oh, thanks for having me. I'm doing okay.
1: Yeah. So, I wonder if, if you, more than anyone, either do or do not cringe when someone mentions the paleo diet, because <laughs> probably because of your, your interactions with the, the Hadza, that you actually do know what people ate, you know, back then or now as hunter-gatherers. So, Can you talk a little bit about uh, your experiences with them and what you've learned?
2: I can. I can. I would say the first, to answer the first part of your question, whether or not I cringe, I think it depends on whether or not we're talking about the paleo diet, like the huge diet craze and fitness craze and lifestyle craze that we're experiencing in the cultural west right now, or whether you actually mean the paleolithic diet, right? Because I have very strong opinions on both. And of course, they're not actually the same thing, um, which we can we can unpack later throughout our throughout our chat um, But yeah, I've actually, learned let's, so let's much. start with
1: that. We'll no, start Mario, with let's that. start with okay. that and then we'll go forward.
2: Yeah, yeah. The HUDs are certainly what are, what are part two? of that. They're certainly part of kind of my thinking on this and what I've learned from them. So um, well, um, as your, your question kind of indicated, um, The paleo diet we've probably all heard of, and I'm asked to talk about that a lot, lot. and um, I get asked about it by my students quite frequently and whether or not we should be eating a quote-unquote paleo diet and what it actually means. And I think those of us who are nutritional anthropologists like myself who study human nutrition in an evolutionary context but also um, are really interested in how our past nutrition can potentially impact um, our contemporary diet choices also. I think for those of us, it's a very interesting and important distinction. So the paleo diet is this move, essentially, um, which is, if you Google it, I mean, I can't even imagine how many hits you would get. Uh, It's also sometimes called the caveman diet. And it's it's a craze, uh, but it actually started, this kind of dietary movement started in the 1960s. So there was a book that was originally published by um, anthropologists and a medical doctor um, that was called The Paleolithic Prescription. And it was this idea um, that our forebears, our ancestors, that um, they had uh, a much healthier diet than we consume now uh, and that was in the 20th century but it extends into today into the 21st century and it was this kind of it proposed this idea of evolutionary mismatch so this idea that we evolved um, under certain selection pressures in our evolutionary past to consume a certain type of diet with a certain level of physical activity which was often associated with getting those foods uh, out of the environment (coughs) and into our bodies and that we have moved very far away from that so we're were kind of um, Stone Agers, you know, living in the fast lanes, that that idea was originally proposed then. There's a really cool book that just, um, there's a Kindle version available now, it's called Neanderthin, um, and it's kind of like this caveman guide to diet and health, and that book was also from the 60s, and it was out of print for a while, but um, as I said, there's a Kindle version now, so people if they're really interested, kind of to see how this movement started, they can go there. Um, and then the Neanderthons. Neanderthons. Yeah. If you if you, you can yeah, find you it can on Amazon. I would
1: recommend. Uh, all you have to do is, is like run 15 miles a day and spend like 5,000 calories getting your food. Uh, it'd be fun.
2: <laughs> well, I encourage you. I encourage you to read the book. Um, it's written by. Um, a couple of different authors. One of them is Ray Audette, I believe, and Troy Gilchrist, I think was another one. And it was A Caveman's Guide to Nutrition. So it's kind of like it was kind of like the first iteration or one of the first, not the first, but one of the first um, iterations of this, uh, of kind of this idea that there's a diet, like essentially where you eat low carbohydrates and it's a really effective way to essentially stay healthier and live longer is to modify what you're eating. Um, and this, this concept of uh, the actual phrase paleo diet was trademarked by Lauren Cordain who wrote the book on the paleo diet um and so it it really is like any other type of diet like any other type of popular diet like that you, that you that you would go on that you would read about in i don't know time magazine or that you would hear about on the news it's just a popular diet and the idea is to try and eat as closely as you can to our paleolithic ancestors which of course is actually scientifically impossible to do but the idea that Uh, You should be eating foods that are more closely aligned with what we would have eaten before the Neolithic Revolution, so before domesticated crops. Um, So it's really heavily meat-based, and it involves things like quinoa and rice as your grains, um, not a lot of other processed types of um, grains. There's things like pasta would be out, you know, um, using ghee instead of butter, uh, cooking with things like avocado. Um, And of course, there's no one paleo diet. There are so many different iterations of this diet. But basically what I tell my students is the basic idea is it's fairly meat heavy, although there are plants, there's almost no processed foods in in the quote unquote paleo diet that you would get from a cookbook, diet book. Um, And whether or not this leads to longevity or to healthier outcomes is completely up for debate. It's not considered by clinical nutritionists to even actually be the healthiest diet, and it's certainly not the diet that we were necessarily adapted to, because most of those plant foods and all of the the animal products that I just mentioned, um, of course, are domesticated animals and are domesticated crops. Um, So if you really want to eat like a hunter-gatherer, it's almost impossible, um, given that we live in the post-industrialized West. So. Should you or should you not um, eat a paleo diet? I'm not here to offer any type of dietary advice. Uh, What I often tell my students is that I think that a reduction in processed foods is the best way to go. I tell them to shop on the periphery of the grocery store, to go to farmer's markets, you know, try to stay away from a lot of those really highly processed foods that are in the middle of the store. Um, Although who doesn't love Oreos, right? Um, But Oreos actually, interestingly enough, are vegan. (laughs) So we could talk about how many types of foods you wanna eat and what, is and is not a healthy diet all day long. But I think from the anthropological perspective, from my perspective as a nutritional anthropologist, the point is to really gain a better understanding of how the contemporary understanding of the popular paleo diet is not actually what we as scientists think about when we think about the paleolithic diet, which is the diet that our ancestors were likely consuming. Um, And that we think about those types of foods and the reason we are so interested in the Paleolithic diet from a scientific perspective is that we, that there's a pretty much a general consensus by most scientists who study evolutionary anthropology and human evolutionary biology that changes in our diet around 2.5 million years ago are one, that those changes are one of the significant um, things that led to the evolution of our genus and ultimately to our species and so what we were eating... But and what we would
1: were you eating. say particularly the evolution of our brains or is it... I would say that's very... Like that?
2: Yeah, hmm, that's a good question. I would say that's very much part of it. And I would say that most people associate the um, enlargement and brain growth that you see around that time with a switch to uh, higher quality food
1: resources. Have you observed directly from the Hadza, like what... What have you learned that surprised you or was different? Working
2: with the Hadza has been such a gift. It's been one of the most amazing experience. Um, I've been working with them since 2004, and I started working with them because I was really interested in learning more about what kind of current day hunter-gatherers could tell us about the evolution of human diet and kind of how... Those dietary choices and dietary behaviors, uh, food collection behaviors that they were engaging in kind of rolled into and impacted social behavior and culture and reproductive and health outcomes. So I I have learned so much um, working with the Hadza. In relationship particularly to food, I would say um, if there were some big insights or takeaway messages that I've kind of gleaned over the last 15 years, I would say that um, data coming from the Hadza kind of underscores this point that plant foods actually make up the basis of most forager diets in contemporary um, settings and in subtropical ecosystems so outside of like circumpolar arctic regions for most populations contrary to popular belief that it's all meat and marrow uh, what you see is that a lot of these foragers are really consuming the majority um, of their diet is plant-based and then punctuated with meat. So meat's important and meat was likely very important in the paleolithic past, but it's pretty well established now that we think that the majority of diet was plant-based and then was, was meat contributed um, some important things like fat and protein and iron um, to a largely plant-based diet. So that was one insight. And I would think the other one is just to move away from this kind of, Meat and potatoes debate, right? This idea was the plant foods or was it meat? Which one was more important? We're omnivores. We evolved to be omnivores. It's a really important part of our legacy of our of the history of our species. Um, and so, really, other foods are important too. Like the hogs that consume a lot of honey, it's actually the most highly ranked food. And it's not just the liquid honey; it's also the larva. So they kind of consume the entire package of honeycomb. And I think that working with them has also led to really important insights that things like honey consumption may have been potentially really important in our evolutionary past
1: as well. So even before people domesticated crops and everything, what was their day like? Like, Did they eat um, still plants just raw most of the time? Uh, Did they get meat rarely because they had hunted down and just wasn't around that much? I mean, did they eat, like, one meal every other day or three meals a day? Like, what are some of the particulars <laughs> of what you learn?
2: Right. Well, I can tell you this about – I can tell you about the Hadza, and then I'll tell you kind of how we can infer about our past from working with populations like the Hadza. So the Hadza are a modern population. They're a contemporary population, just as modern as you and me. But the reason that they're so interesting to scientists is that they still – they are semi-pneumatic. Um, they don't keep any crops. They don't have any um, herd animals. They primarily live off the land collecting wild plant foods and hunting game animals. Uh, increasingly, their diet is, is being um, altered uh, year by year with the introduction of domesticated cultigens, with the introduction of things like corn or wheat or barley um, from missionary groups, um, from government aid organizations, uh, you name it. You know, climate change is, is real, and it's impacting everyone, uh, even foragers living in these small communities. So their diet is changing, but their diet um, is still predominantly, at least the groups that I work with, is still is still largely based on wild foods. And what we can learn about um, studying the Hadza diet, what we can learn about the past, suggests that our Paleolithic ancestors, so so our hunter and gather ancestors. Um, may have been exploiting similar resources and similar types of ecosystems. For over 95% of human evolutionary history, we were hunter-gatherers, which is why we look to forager diets in order to kind of inform our understanding. Um, The whole concept of a meal or three meals a day or breakfast is the best meal, all of that is all culturally specific. There's nothing in, Clinical nutrition or nutrition science, or even in human biology, that would suggest that we're supposed to have three meals a day. Or I have a lot of friends who say, Well, I only eat two meals a day and then I snack, but that's the most important thing. Or um, I have colleagues who say, Well, we should graze all day. We shouldn't have meals. We should just eat small amounts all day, just like hunter gatherers. Well, hunter gatherer diet is first of all, there's not one pan forager diet. It's based on ecological variation, it's based on seasonal variation, it's based on seasonal availability of foods. So sometimes, depending on the resource, if you're a hunter-gatherer, you may be foraging throughout the day. Um, Depending on the resource, you might not be. You might have long periods where you're essentially fasting, uh, and then somebody comes in with a zebra. Or the women come in with a huge collection, a huge amount of underground storage organs or tubers, which are really fibrous plant root species. Um, so I think it's the, the take-home message is that it's variable and that one of the things that we have evolved in terms of not only our digestive system and our dentition, which are really kind of interesting ways to look at how our bodies evolve to, to consume certain types of foods, but one of the most interesting interesting things behaviorally is also that we're flexible. We're a flexible species and that flexibility in terms of what we eat, when we eat it, and how we eat it is one of the things that's allowed us to be such a... Reproductively successful species outcompete other hominin species who were living at the same time as us, and essentially successfully occupy every corner of, of the earth. And and it's this ecological and dietary flexibility which really is one of the hallmarks of human evolution. Not that we were so the, uh, that we evolved.
1: Yeah. So the thing that's new is yeah. the ability for us to actually to be um, uh, to eat in the same way for a long period of time so it sounds like what you're saying is you know eating one way or another may or may not be good but we're able to do things consistently whereas people years ago couldn't do that kind of thing because the availability of food the types of food
2: oh so you mean like contemporary times well i'm still talking about a revolutionary past in terms of so you mean mean, i'm comparing
1: i'm comparing the two like you know i could now for instance if i wanted to do like you know whatever the paleo diet or the Mediterranean diet. I could do that for years at a time, no problem if I That's wanted right. to. But That's back right. in the day there was there, you know, there was no one diet or way of eating because it was modulated by climate and availability That's of food right. and et cetera. That's right. So you got
2: it, absolutely. So people's really
1: diets were varied. That's the difference. Yeah,
2: they were varied. They were varied. They were ecologically variable and they were seasonally variable. And what we know is they were predominantly plant based. And they did also have animal protein and insect protein um, that would be involved in there. But I think that what everybody that you know, probably in your life, eats a different diet, right? Everybody kind of adheres to a different type of dietary regime, whether that is meal but, times or the specific foods they eat. And your point is well taken. That actually is our evolutionary legacy. The fact that we can eat so many different foods in so many different subsistence regimes. Like here, you know, I'm talking to you in a climate controlled room where I can at any moment basically access whatever amount of food I want to access. I have um, clean drinking water. I can go to the grocery store. I can go to restaurants. There's, um, we have a community garden plot right down the street. This is incredibly rare. Uh, Even in our world today, even in the 21st century, this is very, very rare. Most of the world does not have that luxury of being able to just eat whatever they feel like it in whatever moment they feel like it. And so I also think it's important to pay attention, not only to our past, but also to the different types of dietary choices and the different access to food and water that people right now in 2019 have all around the world that is our, our, our our legacy is that we can eat all sorts of different foods. Um, and that's actually what we were adapted to do.
1: Right. But I I think people tend to eat a certain subset of foods for a very long time. And that's very different from the way people, you know, evolved over time is what you're saying.
2: Um, I wouldn't say that I'm saying that at all. I mean, I think that depending on what you, I'm saying it, I'm
1: saying it, what do you think? Oh, you're saying it.
2: Um, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think depending on what ecosystem you lived in as a forager you know, 200,000 years ago, you were gonna be limited to some extent because of what was available in your environment. Today, in 2019, people are really limited to what they can eat based on their access to foods, based on their zip code, based on what country they live in. Um, Some people still eat the same types of foods over and over and over again for most of their lives. I think it really depends on where you live right now in the world. Um, in terms of how diverse your diet actually
1: is. What do you think about uh Andrew Zimmern from Bizarre Foods? He's probably eaten more different foods for longer than anyone that's existed for ever.
2: Oh, I don't I don't actually know about that. I don't I can't I can't offer an opinion. I'm not um uh, I'm not familiar oh, with Yeah, that, had,
1: that, yeah for ahead. years he had a TV show. He had a TV show where he'd literally travel all around the world and try mm-hmm. all the local cuisine. So I just I, I thought he's a funny he's a funny person because Again, his gut microbiome must be like unbelievably varied, or at least he's eaten more different foods than probably anyone in the world has. Maybe.
2: I, I, let's, that's Well, let's see. I haven't seen the show, but I can say kind of from a, from a academic standpoint, I have two comments. The first would be that his microbiome may be more diverse. um, But also we know now that the gut microbiome is really heavily impacted, not just by diet, but by what environment you live in. So the soil that you're around, the types of plant materials in the air that you're breathing, the water that you're drinking, um, whether or not you use antibiotics, whether or not you use antibacterial hand soap. I mean, so I think that that it's possible, but also we can't just tether it directly and only to diet. And my other point would be, he may be the person in the world who's had the most diverse diet. And that's fascinating um, from kind of an interesting media perspective or cultural perspective. Um, but also, what what an amazing life to actually have the ability to do that. That's a, that's definitely a first world. Uh, that's definitely a first world conundrum. How you get around the world to eat that many different foods, right? Most of us don't have it's that. A delicious, conundrum. It's,
1: it's a delicious conundrum.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
1: yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so, what are Absolutely. what are some of the other surprising things that you've learned from your studies that you know weren't obvious to you before? Or, you know, maybe you tell friends about, and they're like, what are you talking about?
2: Well, I think one of the biggest things that um, kind of surprises people is when I start talking about the importance that insects potentially had in our evolutionary past and kind of the long history of the human sweet tooth. So, talking about honey in particular and then kind of extending that to talking about insects in general, um, I think that not only is it really interesting to think about insects as human food uh, in the past, but I also think that that's where the future of food is trending. So, um, anyone who takes my classes or, or goes to a party with me um, or has you know grabs a beer at a bar with me, I'm probably likely if you get me talking about my work too much, I'm probably very likely to start talking about how important it is to eat bugs. Um, so I think that I think that that's kind of something that has really um, how my thinking has evolved over the past decade, working very closely with the Hadza and also just kind of really paying attention and kind of taking the temperature of what's happening um, in the world. Uh, as, as as we're coming up with all sorts of new ways to make our food system more sustainable globally. I think that that's a cool thing that tethers us from the past, from probably the very beginning of our genus homo 2.5 million years ago until right now in the 21st century. I think there has been that, that really interesting connection with, with edible insects that to me is really interesting and surprising.
1: Well, my, uh, I guess I had a lot of jokes here. Like my dogs love to eat flies and moths, but you know, <laughs> aside, but um I saw like on, on on shark Tank uh this company that was making cricket flour, you know for oh, yeah. use of foods, and you couldn't even tell Absolutely. it was a bug, but for no for people it's that, awesome. you know even want to eat bugs, how do you get ones that aren't like covered in pesticides or like good ones, or you know I guess you gotta rely on a big company making them and selling them, but do people even in the u s even have access to insects, even if they wanted to eat them oh
2: that's such a good question, so um Yes, the answer is yes. uh the short answer is yes, absolutely the The long answer is as you might imagine, a little bit longer. um basically, what we know now is a lot of um a lot of people all around the world who work for big um who not only work for corporations that are trying to make kind of change the agricultural industry and kind of think about um the way that humans can. Sustainably keep eating animal protein. And also, groups like the UN um, are starting to put more research and time um, and energy into looking at ways that we can consume insects. And so, the first thing is I'm an anthropologist. So, um, part of my job when I teach my university classes is to remind my students that what we do here in the US. Um, is not necessarily normative or normal, that this is what we do, right? To make sure that they don't have this ethnocentric idea that everything that we do here, that that's kind of the standard. Um, It's what we do, but it's not what the world does. So much of the world eats insects and does so um, readily and routinely and to great um to great culinary delight and so i think that's also really important to to keep in mind is that a lot of the world's already eating insects here in the us we have this kind of ick factor when it comes to it and um i'm hoping along with many others this disappears but yes if you would like to try to incorporate insect protein into your diet you can Pretty easily do so. Um, You can buy things like the cricket powder. um, You can buy that stuff um, on online, um, on Amazon, on all sorts of other types of online grocers. There are many different uh, small-scale insect farms around the country, well, around the world, but increasingly here in the U.S. And um, they're making strides. You know, one one bug at a time. (laughs) These um, small-scale, usually they're in shipping containers, and they are producing um, insects for commercial consumption, crickets, which, you know, we talked about, or things like mealworms, or even ants, um, grasshoppers, all of these things. They're not only, not only can you buy some of them online, uh, but a lot of high-end restaurants in big cities like New York and San Francisco, my hometown city, are incorporating menu items that include insects. So it's it's becoming um, increasingly common uh, for foodies here in the U.S. to eat insects. And so, Hopefully this trend will continue. Um, there's a lot of information available if people are interested in kind of learning more about this. One of my very favorite online uh, resources for this, and also it's very, it's really educational, provides a lot of information, but also just the name of it is um, Little Herds. So you can go to this, to this website, Little Herds, and you can kind of hear about how most of the experts in this field are talking about um, the way that we can use edible insects to feed the future. So that was, there's a lot out there for people who are interested.
1: But so why eat them? I mean, I guess it's more sustainable to raise them and they don't need vast uh, tracts of land to graze on and, you know, like cows. But I mean, what are, what are some of the reasons to eat insects health wise, resources wise? Um,
2: I think the argument is resources wise. So the world's appetite and the world's appetite for meat in particular is growing and our planet is not. Um, so, According to United Nations, the Food and Agriculture Organization, so FAO, <clears throat> about 60% of, of the world's ice-free land surface is currently right now dedicated to raising crops and providing grazing land for the animals that we eat. So big animals, way bigger than bugs, right? So we this land supports about roughly, oh, let's see if I can remember the numbers, 360 million cattle roughly and about 600 million sheep and goats. So, um, I mean, this is really, this is a lot of land, right? So um, up until very recently, we, our history as a species, involved living in close proximity to the livestock and the crops that fed us. This is changing, and this is changing at a drastic rate. So at the turn of the last century, around the year 1900, about 40%, let's just take the U.S. as an example, about 40% of the U.S. population was composed of farmers. Okay, forty percent. Today, it's less than one percent. These farmers here in the U.S. operate over two million farms that cover nine, over nine hundred million acres of U.S. land. So this generates all sorts of food and fuel for us and for the animals that we're consuming. Um, and you know, farmers are using a lot of modern techniques. So increasingly, they need a lot of less. They need lot less labor to grow their crops. Um, but even so, we're talking about a lot of land. And we're talking about far fewer farmers, right? So a lot of land, uh, no new farms, really. Most of the world's rural population is now moving into cities. And uh, due to decreasing rainfall and poor soils, this means that a lot of productivity is declining. So all of these are things that we're contending with. And expanding the range of crop species and the types of animal protein that can sustain humanity, like incorporating insects to the diet is arguably one of the most sustainable um, choices that we can do in terms of kind of changing the way that the, the way that our, that our world uh, eats.
1: Okay so what, um, where are you going with your research and your anthropology what's, what's next that you want to study or what's really intriguing you right now?
2: Hmm, what's really intriguing me right now? Well, kind of where I'm going next um, is very different than so I have I'm going to answer that in two ways. So my work with the Hadza is trending towards better understanding what dietary transition looks like and what the impacts of that might be. So what happens when you start introducing things like maize into a forager diet? at the beginning. So we're at early stages where foragers are kind of, for the first time, we have the ability as scientists and also as the world watching, right, who's who's interested in in knowing about this stuff and in participating in any way that may be beneficial to the communities being studied, um, what are the impacts of incorporating these types of domesticated foods into a wild foraging diet and what kind of impacts does that have? in terms of health, in terms of on infant well-being, in terms of nutrition status, all of that stuff. So I'm working a lot on that right now. I'm working a lot on water and hydration strategies and thinking a lot about water in the world and how small-scale populations like the Hadza in particular get access to water. In terms of kind of my larger academic interests and stuff that I read about and think about and talk about um, in terms of public media stuff, I'm really interested in the future of food. Um, Some of the stuff we just talked about with insects, but I'm also really interested in um, some stuff that kind of seems fringe, but it actually isn't fringe at all. So stuff like tissue engineering or um, growing test tube meat or what some people call cultured meat. I'm really interested in that technology and how that might kind of change the way that we think about food. And so I read a lot about that stuff. Um, Some even suggest that very soon we're going to be able to create edible animal tissue in 3d printers. And I'm just really, I'm just fascinated by lab grown meat in general. Um, And so that's something that, that kind of piques my interest that I follow closely um, in the literature.
1: Is anyone trying to make lab grown insects? Um, Oh,
2: that's a good question. I don't know. I'm sure they may. They may down the line, right? I mean, this idea is is sounds really futuristic, but it's actually not new. This idea that you can create this test tube meat. Um, one interesting little fact uh, that I always like to throw in there is this is something that Winston Churchill predicted back in the 1930s. He wrote a piece in 1932 called "Predictions for 50 Years Hence." And in there he talks about how it's ridiculous that that to think that in the future we're going to be spending the time and energy and space and resources to to raise a whole to grow a whole chicken, you know, as live livestock and that he argued that that soon um we'd be able to grow a chicken wing or a chicken leg in a in a dish. So while the the technology is new, this this tissue engineering is new, the idea is quite old. Um, if you're wondering, uh, which I know you probably aren't, but I think about this several lots or maybe you are, um, the first lab grown hamburger was actually cooked and eaten in 2013 in London. So not that long ago, um, it was created by a team of researchers from the Netherlands from Maastricht University. And it was, a—I think it was about a five pounds, roughly five pound patty. And it cost them over $300,000 to produce. So we're not there yet. We're, we're far away <laughs> from the type from the point yeah, of time so. where you and I can eat, um, you know, a test tube burger. But I, I think it's coming.
1: I've interviewed a lot of those companies. And, you know, there's some of them have created burgers and stuff, but they're kind of like a muscle burger. And if you think of like a regular burger, there's a lot of fat and marbling and different types of tissues and cells. And so there is, this, I think it's going to be a long way to go, but we will get there to yeah, really make meat far. that is similar to the meat we get in
2: yeah, we're far, but I mean, I think it's really interesting, and it's it's something to really think about. And I'm also really interested in things like um, like vertical farming. I'm not sure if you covered that and the stuff and the stuff that that you guys cover, but that's another thing mm-hmm. that's actually we'll not in the future. Like that's happening, right? It's happening right now, and I think that it's um, it's exciting. I think that. We have a, humans have a very very long um and intimate connection with the foods that they eat, and I'm interested in that I'm interested in the way that humans interact with their environment and interact with with their um with the foods that they that they you know choose to eat um and how they choose to process them when they eat them and that extends back to our paleolithic ancestors and and to right now you know what happens in my own kitchen and and in restaurants that where I choose to go eat and so I think um that connection for me is really, is really so much a part of the human condition, kind of the, the long history we have with our food. And so uh, no matter what I move to in the future in terms of my research, this will always kind of be central to the questions that I'm asking.
1: I can tell you my own little anthropological experiment I encourage everyone to do is um, go to, in your neighborhood, you know, a real low-end supermarket and look at the people that shop there and then go to like a really high-end supermarket And you'll literally see almost like a different species of people. They look so different. I've done that in a day from one to another, and it's amazing the difference.
2: Wow. I mean, all the same species. Just want to throw that out there for listeners. We are all the same species. But I think your take-home message is that we also need to pay attention to things like privilege and access to resources and income because that really affects the nutritional choices that you're able to make in our country and around the world. And I think that's a really important point to remember that we are, we are so lucky uh, living in the U S and even (laughs) there are so many people in the U S who don't have um, the ability to make, to have all the nutritional freedom uh, that they would like. They don't have the ability to, there are people living in food deserts. Many, 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 many people in the U S are living in food deserts. And so I think, um, it is, there is a lot of really interesting kind of sociological commentary and economic commentary and political commentary that we could overlay on the top of this. But I think that that's a very important take-home message for your listeners, is to yeah. remember that access to adequate nutrition is a privilege, and unfortunately, it's not a right, and it should be.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, one last closing thought is, uh, you know, I've been to conferences, like health conferences, where I'm probably literally the only one, maybe one other person that I've 400 people that's overweight, and I've been to other places where like everyone's just in god awful shape, so it's amazing the difference. And uh, food is a huge modulator on people's health and and all that, you know, whether they have choice or not. But I just see the effects in doing my, my little experiments, you know,
2: right? And it's also, I think that that's a really great point, and I think it's also important to remember too that um, many people in the world, many low-income and high-risk populations in the world are dealing with kind of a double burden. They're dealing with a double burden of being malnourished and having poor access to to good nutrition, and also um, they're obese, and those often go hand in hand. So, you know, calorie-dense and nutrient-poor food is a problem, um, and that's what we see happening kind of all over the world is this kind of double burden. And so I think yeah, to talk about the obesity pandemic and not talk about economics is, is irresponsible. So I'm really happy to hear you talk about that because I think you're one hundred percent right. It's it's a political issue and not just a nutritional one and I that's really um, that was a keen observation that most people don't really make when they're asking me these questions about diet.
1: Well, yeah. I mean I guess maybe it's being overweight for a very long time, uh, you know, opens my eyes in a little bit different way. But yeah, no, no problem. Well, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, what is the best way for for people to learn more, uh, read, or see what you're doing and working on, and maybe even contact you for collaboration or ideas?
2: Oh, man. Um, Well, let's see. I didn't actually, I didn't expect that question. I didn't usually get asked that question. You can find me um, online. I am a professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and I'm easily easily findable um, on my university's website. I recently did a course um, for the company Great Courses in conjunction with National Geographic. Um, and so if people are, are interested, they can also, um, they can go there, uh, they can look for it. I know that a, some of the classes, some of the individual lessons are available on Audible. So I think depending on what topic you're really interested in, you could maybe pick one there. The course for um, Nat Geo and Great Courses is called Food Science and the Human Body. Um, what else? I think there's a. My mom tells me that there's some YouTube videos of me talking about the evolution of human diet floating around. Um, I can't watch them. It's hard for me to. <laughs> it's sometimes so weird to see yourself like animated in real movement like that if you're not um, used to being right on camera. Um, and a lot of those talks were done through um, the Center for Academic Research and Training in Anthropogeny or CARTA through um, University of California, San Diego. So you can probably find some of those and yeah otherwise you can just um i'm sure if you google uh paleo diet just on the internet you'll find more resources and references than you ever wanted to know in your life um very few of them are contributed by me but the information is out there for anyone who uh for anyone who is is interested um and let's see what else what else what else would i leave people with go out resources yeah here's one that's unrelated to my research but i want to do a plug for this um i have a colleague um, and a friend who runs the Rocky Mountain Micro Ranch in Denver, Colorado, um, and it's the it's Colorado's first and only edible insect farm. And their their motto is we're bringing micro livestock back to the range. And um, I would just also, if people are really interested in uh, learning more about that, I would encourage them to also to go there and do some googling because it's uh, pretty interesting stuff.
1: Very cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate
2: it. Yeah, my pleasure. This was really fun.
0: You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.